This week on Of Mechs and Men. Silently, Yorinaga plans to have an accident. The Kelhounds scheme for a day off. And when Justin takes a stab at getting revenge on a rifleman, he finds himself caught in a jam. This is Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. It's me, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. How we doing, boys? You know, guys, is it gyro or is it gyro? You know what I'm saying? I thought it was gyro. <laughs> well, either way, we're continuing on with chapters 28 through 32 of the book we've been working through. Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Let's get into it. Chapter 28. We open with a shot of Yorinaga Kurita, hands folded behind his back, staring out of a window. (laughs) Sound familiar? Deja vu. (laughs) We're back. We're We're back. back. I was like, oh, we're so back. I was like, let's go. He is watching his unit, the Genyosha, perform calisthenics. And an officer, Shosa Tarukito, Nero, arrives to tell Yorinaga that the Taishi requests his presence. And right away, we see that they're using different rank titles for their officers. Because this guy's a Shosa, and he's talking about a Taishi. This is interesting. I don't really know them all. Brent, tell me about the Draconis Combine rank structure, please. This will be your hip pocket period of instruction on officer ranks in the DCMS. Starting with Lieutenant, we have Chu E, Captain Tai E, Major Sosa, Lieutenant Colonel Chusa, Colonel Tai Sa, Brigadier General Shosho, General Tai Sho. And last but not least, Warlord Taishu. Thank you, Brent. <laughs> Having that is going to be a huge help for, I assume, some of you out there, because I was lost immediately here. We should publish an extra little audio snippet file so that the listeners, they can just keep that on their phone. And anytime they need to remind <laughs> themselves, they can just play <laughs> Brent's segment there. Or, I mean, or listener, please, yeah, feel free to clip it yourself if you'd like for future reference. So, Tarukito, he is a Shosa, so he is like a major, right? Now, remember, he told Yorinaga that the Taishi requested his presence. There's even this bit where he's like, our communication is so good that, just by the way I said it, he knew that when I said requests, I meant demanded. Throughout this whole (laughs) chapter, there's this whole unspoken language element, exchanged glances, and uh, subtle body movements. These guys are on a different level. They're operating at a high level of awareness, as is the Japanese tradition that they are mirroring here in the Combine and within the Ginyosha. Yorinaga takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah, he's hardcore. This is like the most Japanese man who's ever lived. And, except he's not actually from Japan. So, (laughs) the Taishi, 
is what the troops affectionately call the unit's ISF liaison officer. And now remember, ISF being the state intelligence for the Draconis Combine. Correct. They're one part secret police, one part CIA. Exactly. Part-time moon ninjas. (laughs) They have a handler, right? That's who this is. And we also learn a little bit about Taru Kito here. The text informs us that this Shosa, Taru Kito Nero, was so excited to serve under Yorinaga that he immediately answered the call for volunteers and even took a reduction in grade to serve under him. People love working for Yorinaga, right? They love this guy. We'll see it in this chapter. So the Taishi wants to see him. So we see the two men walking silently to Yorinaga's office, pausing only to remove their boots. It does point that out. They take their shoes off when they go inside. This is important because once we get in here, we see that this guy, Shinze Abe, has not removed his shoes. So that's very disrespectful. Yorinaga and Tarukito took their shoes off, but Shinze Abe did not. And Shinze Abe is the Taishi. This is the ISF liaison. I like Yorinaga so ice cold when he comes in too, right? He sits at his desk. He's got this little like desk he just kind of kneels at. And home dude Tarukito, he like kneels down by the door. It's very formal. But it's worth pointing out that Shinze Abe also appears to be in here torturing some guy. There's like some guy in here. He's got him in here with him. This guy looks beat up. Yorinaga looks over and there's a man here. He's got visible welts and bruises on his body. It is clear that the Taishi has been in here like torturing this guy, right? Yes. And oh, please, I have to point out that Yorinaga has not spoken so far. In the chapter. In the book. Or at all. (laughs) It's only been like little hand motions. Yorinaga glanced over and I understood immediately and with a slight movement of his hand and like he motioned for me to take a seat. And it's just like these very small like gestures, but he actually hasn't spoken. He's just like looking around at the uh, occupants. So this is important because I want to say Yorinaga asks the Taishi to explain himself. But he doesn't actually. He just looks at him. And the Taishi is compelled to explain himself, right? (laughs) And so the Taishi tells us that this guy, Narimasa Asano, served with Yorinaga 11 years ago in the Second Sword of Light. And Narimasa has traveled here without orders or permission. He was not invited. This man's not supposed to be here. Yeah, the text even mentions that he was specifically, the offer to join the Ginyosha was specifically not extended to officers who had served with Yorinaga in the past. That's true. Yes. Nonetheless, this man made it hundreds of light years by hitching rides on freighters, yes. literally doing work details. He even says he like worked with the Yakuza sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. Work Beneath his station, if you will. He left his unit, though, right? And he traveled on his own all the way here. So the liaison officer explains that he assumes that this man is an agent of House Davion or House Steiner, right? He's like, obviously, this guy's an agent. And so (laughs) I've been torturing him. 
The Taishi does clarify that he has no evidence and the man has admitted to nothing, but he says that he called Yorinaga in because unfortunately he requires his permission to execute him, right? It's funny, the liaison officer doesn't like that he has to ask permission. It's clearly irritating to him, but he has been told by the coordinator himself that Yorinaga is the master of the Ginyosha and that he is not to interfere with him and that security is his only concern. Yeah, Shinzei this whole time has been throwing off signals to Yorinaga by breaking all the subtle rules to show disrespect to him. He's clearly butthurt. Yes. It's obvious. He's got (laughs) a bad case of being butthurt. And earlier in the chapter, it's pointed out that he loves to send the other, like, officers. He loves to send middlemen. He always sends someone else. He never talks to Yorinaga himself. He always makes sure to, yes, he's very petty, right? A man out of place. So Yorinaga invites Narimasa to explain himself. And Narimasa explains that when he heard of the Genyosha, this is where he tells a story about how he left his unit, traveled over 200 light years, he had to disguise himself as a laborer, and he arrived here two days ago. Since then, Shinze Abe has been beating him senseless. <laughs> I love this. Yorinaga just glances at Tarukito, and Tarukito asks the uh, Taishi why this man didn't appear on any of the rolls or any of the paperwork. Basically, why is this the first time we're hearing about this guy? But what's so funny is Yorinaga still hasn't spoken. You realize that this guy, Tarukito, is doing all the talking, but Yorinaga is the one asking the questions. Yes. Tarukito is the Yorinaga translator out of silence. Yes. There's something being portrayed here, though. It's easy to make fun of this, but it's clear that these two men have to have quite the understanding. And Yorinaga has to be very communicative with his body language. And as the prose makes it out through his eyes. Yes. And what I found most interesting about it, what I took from it is Stackpole paints Yorinaga here sitting on top of the Ginyosha as a man in absolute control. He's not giving anything that would be misconstrued, misunderstood. It is precision all the way through. Are you saying that his communication is completely flawless? Absolutely. And you build that upon the previous chapter when we met Yorinaka during the tea ceremony, and we have the gravel being raked, and the garden being upkept, and how it's being told Yorinaga would see this. No one else would notice any of right. the details, but Yorinaga right. does. Exactly. The best. Ice cold. It's a man who does only exactly what he intends to. Which is terrifying and remarkable as a man in charge of this kind of unit to build it in his own image. Exactly. And his sole reason for living is the destruction of the Kellhounds. <laughs> Ominous. I love the part. At one point, he makes a gesture for the Tai Chi to have a seat, right? When he's trying to like cool him down, the dude starts to go for the neuro whip. He has a neuro whip, by the yep. way, another Verthandi callback, <laughs> right? We started standing in front of the window, like, let's go. And then, and then, and then we get the neuro whip. 
What do we know about people who employ neurowhips? Exactly. <laughs> this guy is at least a little bit of a Dr. Vlade, right? <laughs> so Yorinaga asks him to sit, but actually he just, it says he moves his hand like a leaf falling from a tree, but the man falls to the ground like an avalanche, right? He makes like the most uh, subtle of like hand motions and the dude just takes a seat. It's so cool. I love that. And the whole time we get these little bits where we get sentences of uh, admiration, like Taro Kito. It's almost like from his perspective that we're witnessing Yorinaga here. I did like that when the dude sits down, like Yorinaga's like, and the dude like, you are compelled. Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> the liaison officer explains that he did not report Asano's arrival for security reasons. He was hoping that if he had any accomplices, that they would reveal themselves. Taro Kito reminds Shinzei that the coordinator reminded him that all of the Genyosha officers and men are to be as devoted to Yorinaga as the Taisa is devoted himself to the coordinator. Brent, what is the Taisa equivalent? Taisa would be colonel. Colonel, right? So Yorinaga is effectively the colonel. A field grade officer. He's the Taisa. And the coordinator has reminded the Taishi that Yorinaga's the boss. And he's got to listen to him. And the guy doesn't like it. This is where Tarukito lays into this guy, right? Yorinaga, by the way, still hasn't said anything. But Tarukito starts going in like... At one point, right before he starts cooking, he kind of glances at Yorinaga. <laughs> they just exchange a brief glance, and Kito's like, all right, I'm going in. And this is where he goes in on the guy. He's like, listen, you think because this guy wasn't invited that he's some kind of spy or whatever, but he's like, there's so much that you're missing here. Think about his story. For him to sacrifice so much and do all this stuff that is Beneath his station, he is resourceful and ambitious. He asks the Taishi, he's like, what better recruit could we ask for? This is the perfect guy. This, to me, it mirrors Justin's trial, right? Where we got everything that Justin did flipped on end. Here, we have the inverse happening here by Tarakito. Tarakito is showing this ISF agent that... Actually, everything that this man has done has been to show great honor towards Yurinaga. Totally. Absolutely. But again here, we see how things are so simply turned on end. So simply is all of the information inverted. Yeah, and this poor guy here is clearly acting as an outlet for this guy's control issues. <laughs> right, he's like, well, I'm not allowed to do anything, but I can beat this man with a neuro whip in my quarters for two days <laughs> before telling Yuri Naga. We all have an outlet, right? Yeah, he thinks he's going to get away with it, right? He's like, well, I got mine. I got to beat this guy because I'm a tough guy. What a narc. This guy sucks, right? <laughs> so this is where Tarukito asks Yuri Naga for permission to show Asano to his proper quarters, sir. And Yuri Naga, you see, he just reaches into his desk Right, and he pulls out a paper, a brush, and some ink. We see he does some brushwork. He writes something. He reaches in. He stamps the paper with his personal seal. 
Tarukito takes the paper and he reads it. He's like, very good. As you have ordered, I will conduct Chusa Narimasa Asano to the suite next to yours. So right away, he has been given the rank of Chusa and he's been given the room right next to Yorinaga. So that's cool. Brent, what's a Chusa again? Chusa is Lieutenant Colonel, again, a field grade officer. Lieutenant Colonel being, for those that don't know, directly below Colonel. Right below Colonel, right? Huge promotion. Goes straight to Chusa. Gets the room right next to the boss. How cool is this? Shinzei Abe lost entirely here. Oh, yeah, he gets steamrolled. <laughs> oh, and then we get this cool scene of Tarukito and Narimasa hanging out in his new apartment. It's cool. It's clean. It says it's in like a little L shape. There's a little, oh, gentlemen, there's something I wanted to point out. Did you notice that more than once now, instead of saying bathroom or shower, he's used the word cleaner? <laughs> Have you guys noticed that? I didn't pick that up. No. I just uh, thought earlier, Justin, when they were in the locker room, Justin doesn't take a shower. Justin's in the cleaner. And That's interesting. Stuff like that. He uses it again here. I just wanted to point it out. I don't know if there's any consistency. It might be nothing, but I noticed it and I thought it was funny. Noted. <laughs> so they're hanging out. He's in the new apartment. They're checking out his new uniform. It fits great. He looks good. Narimasa is so happy for he once again has the green knee on his shoulder. He's like, man, it's all worth it. I would have come all the way to get this. Kanan, what does knee mean? It's a two. And this is where Tarukito asks him a little bit about his story. Narimasa tells Tarukito the story of what he saw that day on Mallory's world and about how after that incident, because he was, they were with the second sort of light, right? But after that, the regiment was broken up, or at least the command structure was dissolved. They were all sent to uh, different places, right? Scattered throughout the combine. And this was recounting the fight between Yorinaga and Morgan Kell. Morgan Kell, exactly. Where he threw the swords, yellow bird I see, gray dragon hides wisely. <laughs> he tells him about how he saw Morgan Kell's archer vanish from tactical displays. The archer did not register on any of his scanners. He tried them all. No one could target it. Tarukito is like, gosh, that's a mech warrior's worst nightmare. An enemy you can't target? I'm like, is it? I thought it was Inferno rounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's the heat gauge for me, guys. <laughs> yeah, after the battle on Mallory's world, he got demoted. He went all the way back to commanding a single lance. He's like, wow, just like when I got out of the academy, back to a panther lance. <laughs> Narimasa actually says that he never abandoned his duty, but he probably one day would have committed seppuku if he had not been given uh, this chance. When Tarukito asks why he would do that, Narimasa tells him that he was almost assigned to Duke Recall's service. <laughs> <laughs> he's like dude they're about to make me run panthers for recall dude i would literally rather kill myself <laughs> stackpole's got it in for panthers so far and i'm here for it so, 
And Taroki is like, surely you would have been able to deal with the Gray Death Legion. And the guy's like, yeah, but yeah, but not as the leader of a panther once, dude. I like, like this guy. Right. Very honest. Yeah. He's right. <laughs> Let's be honest. We saw them boys kill a lot of panthers. I do love the part where he continues on. He's like, be wary, Tarakito. For the Great Death Legion, it's not far behind the wolf's dragoons or the Kellhounds and deadliness. Yeah. I'm like, yes, they are. <laughs> Meanwhile, Grayson is like in his marauder and he's like blown chewing gum too big and it like has like stuck to his uniform and now he's like trying to get it off (laughs) so funny this is less than a year after the thing on verthandi ended right and the price of glory hasn't happened yet by the way price of glory hasn't happened yet i think that grayson i think they're on the leal campaign like right now but yeah, Verthandi has already happened. So this guy totally could have been a Panther pilot on Verthandi, but instead he ran away and uh, <laughs> now he's in the Warrior Trilogy. Isn't that funny? Hey, well, good. good call on his part. Yeah. 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 Good job. I like this guy. You get your choice of yeah. serving under Yorinaga or Nagomu. <laughs> that being said, we didn't see that many Panthers. We did see more traditional like lances out of. Nagomu and Hermes and too under Duke Recall. Get them forty tonners. Maybe they had to leave those Panthers at home because they were Uh-oh. missing a commander. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out for that Vulcan. <laughs> I think it is interesting though. You see here that the GDL's rep, they're like, "Hey, oh, those guys are pretty good though, right?" Especially you see it from inside the combine. You yep. see two combine dudes talking about the GDL, and they're like, "Oh, snap, the GDL," and you're like. Heck yeah. Their perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Heck especially yeah. they're scared. They're shook. You know when Duke Recall had to explain himself, you know, especially the second time around, he was like, You don't understand the force I had to deal with. <laughs> yeah. You know he upsold that shit. So <laughs> to me, this is actually really humorous. Yes. Yes, I, I love this. <laughs> oh, did you reinforce them, my Duke? No, actually, I removed several assets from the planet. <laughs> actually, I took all the good shit with me. Yes. <laughs> Specifically, the aerospace fighters. They're expensive. This is where Yorinaga appears behind them. They're like, is someone else here? And then he's there. And we see also, again, allow me to point out, he has not spoken thus far in this book. He still hasn't said anything. So Yorinaga hands Tarukito a piece of paper, right? He pulls out this little message and Tarukito opens it up and reads it. And he looks shocked. He says, Taisa, this is horrible. For Shinze Abe to die in a kendo accident? To have his windpipe crushed by a strike? Should I not transmit this message I- immediately? And Yorinaga, he gives him a very slight shake of the head. Then we see Shinze Abe walk into frame wearing kendo armor. And you're like, let's go. Let's go. And yeah, right. The dude walks up. He's got the helmet under his arm. And he's like, well, Yorinaga-san, shall we? 
He says, I have meetings this afternoon, and he added, staring at Narimasa, investigations to complete. <laughs> rip Bozo. <laughs> yeah, Rip Bozo. <laughs> no, he did not get away with it. Not whatsoever. No, he He's did done. not get away with it. No, it's over. <laughs> this is awesome. Finally. Yorinaga handing that note over as he walked in the room is top shelf for me. I loved best. it. It was incredible. This chapter is awesome. This is incredible. I love I've it. I've been waiting so long for more Yorinaga stuff. You're like, who's this guy? What about that guy? <laughs> and then Stackpole's like, oh, you didn't forget about that guy, did you? And you're like, is this guy cool? And you're like, this guy's extremely cool. I, I, I clearly Stackpole is slowly raising the water level here, right? It's some real like creeping tension in the background. He's causing me to go through a crisis because I love the Kellhounds through his <laughs> descriptions of them. But he also has made me love Yorinaga. <laughs> and by extension, I assume the Ginyosha. <laughs> well, we're going to keep it with Yorinaga for now. All I've seen the Ginyosha doing is calisthenics. <laughs> I've read a bunch of these books, and the Combine is very Japanese in this, <laughs> like in this era. This is one of the most, If you, you notice how Japanese everything is? I just wanted to point that out. It's not subtle in any way. No, it is. I just wanted to, it's like everything they do is the most Japanese thing imaginable. And it isn't always this heavy handed. I think <laughs> they just wanted to make it clear, like, hey, this is space Japan. They wanted to get it all in there. The kendo armor and the- I also think that America at this time is going through a bit of an importation of Eastern totally. culture. Exactly. And- this is. Great point. It's absolutely a re like a cultural uh, reflection. I mean, all of these are, but right. This is a great example of it. Ex yeah. And I mean, it really, this wasn't too far off. This is a decade or two after Shogun was released, which yes. kind of brought in a huge wave. Western interest in Eastern Imperial Japan. Exactly. Do you think Michael Stackpole watched anime, dude? <laughs> Was he importing VHSs at this time? But yeah, this is the guy. This is the leader of the Genyosha. Apparently, he's all about destroying the Kellhounds. You're right. It's very sad. It's very scary. You're like, oh man, this is like the coolest guy in the universe. But the Kellhounds are pretty cool too. He's about taking care of the Kellhounds and saying stuff, but he's all out of saying stuff. And we've got a good look at the Genyosha here and what Yorinaga's been up to. So... We'll have to find out what the Kellhounds are up to in the next chapter. Chapter 29. We're back on Pacifica, back with the Kellhounds. It is the 15th of April, and this chapter opens with that scene of the Kellhounds fighting each other in that training exercise. It's like a whole combat sequence. We jump right into it. We see Dan is out here in his Valkyrie. It's this whole fight. It's very cool. It's very detailed. You get a little like action shot of all the different mech warriors, which is cool. It's kind of going around. They're all in this jungle. They're shooting lasers and missiles. All the fire is kind of going at this victor. Yeah, there's a victor here. It's cool though. You see they're having like a little scrimmage match, right? Clearly they've divided themselves into two teams, and they're having a little training exercise. It's cool. 
you realize, oh, this isn't, they're not in a simulator, right? No, this is a field exercise. And I think it's interesting because obviously they're, they're, they're not using like real weapons. They're not using fully powered weapons, right? They would be using uh, down powered or even the computer is doing the simulated fire. Right. For the LRMs, they talk specifically about that. You're getting like a signal lock. It brings images of Top Gun to mind. I almost wonder if Stackpole used it as a reference. Totally. It's really cool. I like this. You see that the mech warriors can be out here training in their mechs and like shooting at each other, but not actually damaging each other. Right. I guess you could still mess up. (laughs) I mean, the Valkyrie does take a bit of a fall. It does. Yeah. There's a maintenance toll that comes with this kind of training, but it's also, I imagine, invaluable, right? Simulators are good and all, but you can't beat the real thing, the feeling of the weight and the gravity as you like twist and turn. And so it's probably worth the uh, monetary expense of repairs and scrapes and repaints and whatnot that comes from it. Good point. So we get this really cool shot, right? Where they're all fighting this victor. And Oh, remember, because that's what Sortek piloted. The last time we were hanging out with the Kelhounds, Sortek was in the Victor. And now we're out here. We actually don't know who the Victor pilot is for the first part of this. We get this really cool shot, though, where we see Dan jump jets through the tree canopies, right? He's in the Valkyrie. He wants to get the drop on the Victor. So he's like, I'm going to hit him in my jump jets. And he flies through the tree canopies. But then I saw this really cool shot where like you go up with Dan, but you see at the same time, the Victor pilot has correctly timed his jump. So they both emerge through the canopies simultaneously. And the Victor midair, dude, he like lines up his autocannon and he just blasts Dan's Valkyrie like out of the air, like, like they're fighting <laughs> above the trees. It's so sick. Though we get the jump jet shot and Dan goes up like, I'm going to get him. And when he gets up, like, like the victor is there with this auto cannon out and he's like, oh, sh-, and it's like, boom. And he just like gets crushed. It's cool. That Pontiac 100 is going to hit like, well, a small car. <laughs> yeah. Especially against something like a Valkyrie. Exactly. It's cool. I love this. Luckily, it was simulated. Yeah, but this is for real, though, right? This is the part where Dan gets messed up, though. His Valkyrie slams into the ground, and he's like, ugh! Like, he, like, tanks the (laughs) hit. He gets messed up. He's sore, right? He's going to feel like he got hit by a truck tomorrow morning. Right. uh, Yeah, he does get messed up. It's funny. They talk about he's flung against the back of his harness. Yeah. It is dangerous, right? Like, someone could get hurt doing this. It's still invaluable to, like recognize that obviously when you fall you're going to take a beating but to feel it is to understand exactly what it's going to feel like and what to expect right you can't really simulate that yeah dan hits the ground and we see the victor starts moving in to finish him right he's we get the shot he's standing right over the valkyrie and dan's looking up and he can he's looking straight down the autocannon but then the Victor gets crushed by like a bunch of LRMs. It says like 60. Yeah. I think Dan's like, oh, that's the catapult and the trebuchet. And you're like, dang, dog, that's a lot of missiles. <laughs> the Victor gets messed up. He actually gets crushed by, and you realize, oh, Dan was like spotting for the LRMs. Catapult. Noun. Any of various military machines used for hurling missiles, such as large stones or spears. In ancient and medieval times. 
The Catapult C1, a 65-ton heavy mech, is a brilliant fire support mech. It has two rugged and reliable Holly 15-tube long-range missiles in each of its ears. These are the Catapult C1's bread and butter. The Catapult supports its fellow lancemates as they close the distance with Hellfire from afar. Those ears are backed up by four Martell medium lasers, making it no slouch in supporting its lancemates, even in a near ambush as well, especially with its complement of Anderson propulsion jump jets. Since many catapults were taken with Alexander Kerensky during the Exodus, the catapult has become increasingly rare amongst the successor states, especially outside of the Capellan and Caritan space. In the early 3020s, you will be hard-pressed to find a better support mech that fares as well in mountainous terrain as the catapult. If you can find one, they are worth the fistful of sea bills you'll pay. So yeah, the catapult is a great support mech. It does so many different jobs as a support mech where it's not just having to be on the back lines there firing LRMs. It can, and it does seem like anytime you run one, it loves to do it. But then the medium lasers definitely give it an edge when things do get up close. It's scary at both a range and close enough. Oh, I love the catapult. I love the design. It's one of my favorite like of like the classic. I like that it's just like a big missile bird on legs. Yep. yep. It's cool. It's really cool. And... So that's it. Technically, Dan's team does win, right? He did take that big hit, but Dan's team is victorious. And this is where both the reader and Dan learn that it was Patrick in the victor. Patrick Kell, actually, right? He's like, oh, Patrick, I didn't know you were checked out in the victor. And I think <laughs> Patrick says something about how it was like a refurb by his like cadet company. It was Patrick who uh, hit him with the autocannon in midair. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> I love this part because Patrick, as soon as like Dan chimes in, it's like a Victor. We didn't even know Victor was going to come out here. Yeah. And Patrick's like, oh, you know, I had to have some fun with this. It's more than yeah. enough to take care of you all when the scout lands here. I do like the bit here. Salome says the salt mechs are good and all, but at the end of the day, they're bullet sponges, right? Everyone is going to shoot at them because nobody wants them to continue to be a problem and uh she's right yeah the line from the text is the bigger the mech the more people gunning for it right exactly. and that's exactly what we see in this scene yes patrick agrees he tells her that truer words couldn't come from comstar <laughs> he says and then he orders everyone <laughs> which back is to the a, base. a wild thing to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't know if uh, he needs to talk to Grayson. They need to start looking at some maps together. So we get another Kellhounds officer meeting scene. We get another card game and cats posted up on the sofa and everyone's just standing around looking really cool. Especially Cat Wilson. Yes. It's like, oh, let's check on the Kellhounds. And then we get another one of these. I'm like, yes, dude, let's go. So first they discuss that company of Panthers, right? Remember those panthers from that dropship? Oh, yeah, the Swamp Panthers. The Swamp Panthers, yes. <laughs> we know that there is almost certainly a company of panthers out there in that swamp, but the infantry commander, Osirin, uh, he has yet to find any sign of them on his patrols, unfortunately. He says there's signs of life, but they were already aware that 
some people have chosen to live out there. Yeah. And he was like, nothing that like was surefire to be these old swamp panthers that are giving everyone a problem. Yakuza. <laughs> the Yakuza. That's right. Yeah. It's cool. Swamp Yakuza. <laughs> this is where Dan, he thinks that this panther company probably wasn't ever intended to be a part of that main attack force at all. This was always the plan. Dan thinks that they were always meant to be kind of secretly held in relief out there stalking the swamp waiting to strike and he's he's a bit conspiratorial about it it does seem like their big brain move right because they went to all this trouble to get in these fights all to just unleash these swamp panthers so this must be important to whatever's up the cretan sleeves yeah they're all trying to figure out what the point of it all is and when cat wilson speaks up and Cat Wilson reminds us that the dragon never forgets. <laughs> Once again, someone mentions Mallory's world. Seems important. It's important. To what's going on here. It is. And Dan points out that <laughs> panthers are best known for their ability to fight in cities, remember? And that this spaceport that we're in right now, this kind of is the closest thing we have to a city around here. So basically, he's suggesting that this is probably the target. A very reasonable uh, idea. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's sound. That makes sense. It also seems to be the only important piece of infrastructure, period. Yes. <laughs> Patrick agrees. And so he tells Osirin to have his troopers switch their missiles with Inferno rounds. And I like this. All the mech warriors in the room appear visibly uncomfortable at the mention of Inferno rounds. When he says, like, oh, load Inferno rounds on them, they all cringe. Like, they're scared. The mech warrior fears the Inferno. We know this. The story up till now has shown through the Grey Death Legion. Lori was a little extreme, but nonetheless, it's not something that uh, mech warriors like to deal with. But the reality of that there is, I think the fear if I was going to place my bets, isn't so much from them being used on them as getting their armor breached and taking one to one of their Inferno rounds and then them being uh, engulfed in their own ammo explosion. I think that's a reasonable thing to be fearful of, if I'm going to be <laughs> honest with you. Dirt pigs are scared of fire. Remember that. <laughs> oh, also, Osiris declares that it is once again time for all the techs and Aztecs to qualify with small arms. Brush up, dust that pistol off, and make sure you can still shoot. Basically, you know, they're like, hey, we got we to gotta tighten up around here. But it's also smart because it gives a reason on paper as to why everyone's walking around with sidearms now. Right. And so he does this to not raise alarm. That's true. It's a great plan. He's probably going to more effort than even necessary, but it's best to uh, take caution when dealing with spies. Yeah, that's right. Patrick says, let's tighten things up, but let's not make it look too conspicuous. It does. It's true. They're good. Oh, and this is where he asks about the Nick Jones situation. He says that. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> remember Nick Jones, everyone? So, Oh, yeah. yeah. Never forgot him. Nick Jones, he's the guy who's scheduled to retire one day after the jump ship leaves, right? And so he's going to be stuck here for months, even though he won't be getting paid. It's very sad. And Patrick says that he asked General Joss, but uh, fortunately she wasn't able to do anything because they're in the Isle of Sky and Aldo Lestrade <laughs> is an asshole. And this is where Dan and Kat 
they explain their cheeky little plan to lose a day on the calendar. This part's amazing. I love this. This is the best. It's brilliant. Yeah. So it turns out that they've decided that they're going to have a little oopsie and they're going to skip straight from the 24th to the 26th. They're going to (laughs) skip the 25th. And it's because the time is weird here. Remember, it has like weird time. And so they're like, look, no one's really paying that close of attention. It's it's actually us. We're the ones who are keeping the books. So we're just going to lose a day. It's fine. And it's like, it's like this cheeky little plan. They're like so cheeky about it. They're like kind of like smirking and they're like so proud of themselves. It's <laughs> like so funny. They're going back and forth. I love their like, wait a minute. You guys have watched that night, and yeah. they're like, "Oh, you caught us, yeah. Patrick." And, yeah. and, and they're like, "Well, I was gonna run a night up anyway, so I think it's all good." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, oh my god, and I love it because Cat points out that exactly, Osirin wants to take his troops out on like a night up. It's gonna be this whole training thing, but they think it's gonna be the night of the twenty fifth anyway. Cat points out that this just means that. And he says, the troopies will go to bed, (laughs) secure in the knowledge that they'll be awake before the major comes to get them. And he's like, won't they be surprised? (laughs) Which means that, like, yeah, Osiris is going to kick down the door and be like, wake up, like, time for the ops. And they're going to be like, what? That's not till tomorrow. Like, what's going on? And it's like, it's so funny. It's funny until you're the one getting your door kicked down. That's yes. It says, everyone laughed, though Osirin's chuckle came a bit lower and more sinister than the rest. Cat's like, oh man, you're going to like wake him up like way earlier than they expect. And he's like, yeah. It's like, there's a little vengeance on his breath. You know what I'm saying? He's so excited. (laughs) This rules. I love that whenever the Kellhounds get up to mischief, like everybody's on board. In this room, whenever they're having their poker meetings, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, what can we do to mess with everyone? And the the more people you catch in the net, the better the plan is. Yeah. I love that Cat Williams, it's said this multiple times now, I believe, but Cat Williams isn't even staff or officer. In fact, he's refused to pick up rank multiple times, but he's so imperative to the operations for the Kellhounds. And so they're just like, come on, Cat, we just want you to hang out with us. He, You keep refusing rank, but c- come on, man, just like hang out. And he's like, all right, man. He's too cool uh, not to have in the room with you. Exactly. Uh, he elevates the coolness of the room. You said Cat Williams. <laughs> Cat Williams. <laughs> the comedian. No. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Kanan's chuckle came a bit lower and more sinister than the rest. <laughs> E2, Kanan? Yes. Everyone admits that the plan has merit. It's a good plan. And Dan and Kat agree that they will still pull watch duty because they know how important the field exercise <laughs> is to the major. They don't want the major, Osirin, to miss out on the field exercise. <laughs> I like to believe that's because they want to see the troopies getting woken up and like yeah. having to shuffle <laughs> yeah. out. They're they like, exactly. we'll take being uncomfortable for a little bit to get a laugh. That's exactly what they mean. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's very funny. They want them to suffer. <laughs> That's what I mean. They're always up to something in this room. That's what's yeah. so great about these scenes. And I like it. Patrick thinks the boys for having thought so far ahead. 
And Kat <laughs> says that it was Dan's idea, but Dan admits that he couldn't have done it without Kat. And they're just both like, yeah, I couldn't have done it without you, buddy. It was all you. No, really. Like, it was all you. And uh, they're so funny. And so the meeting ends with Patrick declaring that in 40 days, they'll lose one day and Master Sergeant Jones gets shipped off this wet rock. It's win-win. Well, except if for the troops. I love and this part. This is great. for the people that we're going to meet in just a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. This is so funny. So then we get a jump cut to a couple of combine soldiers, like hunched over in their little like goblin bunker. You're just like, what? <laughs> huh? All of a sudden... The text is like, then there's like some guys like hunched over a little computer, like in a little bunker somewhere. And we see this combine officer, okay, named Kamakura. He's hunched over his Comtech's shoulder and they're looking at this computer screen. And you can see what the screen says. We learn that they're tapped into the Kellhounds network. They're like receiving all this data. They're hacked in. So you realize, oh, dude, they've dug a bunker somewhere and they've like wired up the facility. (laughs) They're totally getting spied on. There's like some combine dudes here. And the Comtech, he shows his officer that Victor, though, the one that Patrick had, it's due to be shipped out soon. It's not staying on planet. They're going to ship it out, send it somewhere else. And, oh, I like, it says this guy, Kamakura, he begins to call for his aid, but the man appears like before he can even get a word out. He's like, yes. And it's kind of like freaks him out. He's like, how's he do that? And the officer confirms that the Combine strike force, the counterattack, right? They're going to come back and attack again. There's more guys coming on spaceships, and they're scheduled to arrive on the 25th of May, but they're not expected to make Planetfall until the 27th. <laughs> and you realize, oh, these, right, these are the Swamp Panthers, right? What, yep. what, yes. what, what we are looking at here is the commander of the Swamp Panther Company. They've been entrenched in here for who knows how long. Yes. Like sweating. He, he's like miserable. This, by the way, it's the dude's like, I hate this. This sucks. <laughs> and this whole thing is, this sucks so bad. He's like, I need to make a splash, right? I need a promotion. I can't do this anymore. So <laughs> we learned that the overall, the original plan is that this force here, the Swamp Panthers, they were going to make a diversionary strike on several different agro centers and in an attempt to draw the Kellhounds away so that strike force can land and attack the base, right? They're going to try to get them out of there. They're, they're going to try to soften the base up. So that's why the Swamp Panthers are here. They're waiting to spring their trap. But we knew that. Everyone knows that they're, that they're out here and they're up to something. But now we learn what they're up to. Skullduggery. Exactly. But that's not good enough for Kamakura. He needs a victory, right? He needs a victory to prove that he is worthy of a real command, as always. He can't take the L. (laughs) We get another one of these, and he thinks that with the victor gone, his panthers should be able to deal with the Kellhounds, especially if he uses his infantry to raid the barracks. They're going to do a combined arms assault on the facility. He's going to go in. He's going to kill all the Kellhounds himself. And he decides that he will instead use his forces to launch a surprise attack on the Kellhounds base during the early darkness on the 26th. <laughs> on the 26th. Exactly. And that's how Nick Jones got folk songs written about him. <laughs> this is such a good joke. 
<laughs> this is so funny though that we cut to these guys and they're like, "Don't worry, we're gonna like attack them on the twenty fifth or like." And we and we but we just had the scene where they're like, "We're gonna delete that day on the calendar." Yeah. So you're like, "Oh yeah. no, these Cretans yeah. are about to be murdered by." A rounding error by bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. By, by just a poker lie. By a joke. <laughs> because they thought it would be funny to skip a day so they could get their boy off planet so he wouldn't be miserable. Yeah. And that just goes to show you kindness is always the right answer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and then it's like cut to Kamakura as he's sitting <laughs> in like this like wet, muddy bunker. And he's like, I've got it. I've got the perfect plan to get me slingshot into the upper echelon of the yes. Draconis forces. Yes. And it's just like, <laughs> all I need to do is strike him on the 26th. And you're like, oh no, it's Stackpole. So funny. You're doing this guy so <laughs> Little dirty. Little does he know, the 26th is about to not exist. <laughs> it's so mean. It's so funny. And you know, him and his aide are just like nodding and laughing like, yeah. ha Yes. My lord, bold strokes make the dragon happy. Ha ha. You know? And they're like smiling. It's so funny. And yeah, it's that's how the chapter ends. Kamakura smiled yep. openly. Oguchi-kun, from your lips to the dragon's ears. I'm like, let's go. These guys are so sure of this. I'm and excited. it's just like Stackpole has just dunked on these dudes. And I love it. I'm here for it all the way through. It is an interesting thing from a writing perspective, right? He's like removed the tension. Yeah. The comedy's carrying it now, but it makes you wonder where's the trick up the sleeve, yep. right? Yeah. Where does this explode in everyone's faces here? It's interesting. Absolutely. But in the meantime, it did make me laugh all the way through. <laughs> That's true. Soon as they started talking about dates, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> These boys are going to have... A much worse time than they're already having. Yeah, you're right about it's like the joke is backwards. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it yes. is. Yes. Yeah, it's like a reverse William H. Keith Jr. You know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a, a reverse Keith, yeah. we call it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. I love this chapter. The Kellhounds are cool. That's a big takeaway from this book so far is you're like, oh man, the Kellhounds are pretty cool. Yes. Each time they come up, they're always doing something fun. They're making the most out of bad situations. It doesn't feel forced, right? No. Stackpole is always maintaining that show, not tell. He's not like, aren't these guys cool? He's like, hey, aren't these guys cool? We see it through their their actions and their shenanigans. They're funny. Very likable. Very likable crew. The Kellhounds. And I think that's cool. It's possible... That you were into Battletech and you'd heard of the Kellhounds, right? They're pretty a popular mercenary company, right? They're like one of the maybe one of the most. Definitely they're, one of the they're up there yeah, for sure. Definitely. And but maybe if you hadn't read about them, if you like read this, you'd be like, oh man, these guys are cool. That's how it's hit me the whole time. Where yeah. <laughs> I've I've heard about the Kellhounds, I've seen them around just being in Battletech, but this book has sold me on them. I can't wait to see whatever Kellhounds you paint up. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's funny. We get this whole setup for something. It's not even quite... Dan and Kat have kind of thrown a grenade here. They've done something. We're not even sure. Now we're like, what's going to happen? The, what does this even mean? <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. But we have 
some shenanigans are going to occur in the future. That's what we know. Fate is in motion and consequences inbound. Yes. So that's been our Kellhounds check-in. As always, very satisfying. <laughs> That's what it feels like, doesn't it, though? Yeah. It's like we get these little, it's like, oh, this is a Kellhounds check-in yeah. chapter. Let's yeah. see what the dogs are up to. Yeah. Having a good time, as always. Love those guys. But now that we've got the check-in over with, it is time for us to switch back over and see what Justin's up to in the next chapter. Chapter 30, Solaris 7, 420. I'm not joking. It says that. By the way, it's 420 on Solaris 7, dude, by the way. So that's cool. So we open with the scene of Justin watching Holovids. He's in Gray Noten's booth in the Valhalla Club, right? And he's alone. Remember, he was like, he can use it. He was like, hey, Justin, I got this hollow booth you can use if you want. All these tapes, (laughs) you can watch them. and. Yeah, so Dustin, I guess, took him up on it. He's here alone because he came to watch some tape. He's a tape dog. (laughs) That's what you got to do to be a champion, dude. You got to watch tape. People got to realize. He's in here. He's sweating. He's watching a tape of a rifleman fighting an Ostrock. Brent, oh, Brent, this is the first Ostrock mention, isn't it? Ostrock's cool. The OSR, TAC-2C Ostrock, is my favorite of the egg mechs that the weirdos over at Ostman Industries produced. This old Humpty Dumpty of a 60-ton medium mech can move at a brisk 86.4 kph. It's armed with quite the array of lasers, two large and two medium. Those are complemented by the crit-seeking Totschaklagen 4-tube SRM launcher. The Ostrock is a mean skirmisher, It was, unfortunately, initially produced in pretty low numbers, but if you can find one, they are a great complement to a medium or a scout lance. Oh yeah, it even says, headless, Ostrock. Justin describes it as headless, which is funny. Again, backing up your egg thing. So, we see the (laughs) Ostrock circling the rifleman, attempting to move into its rear arc, and we've seen this before. Right, And okay, and this is where we realize Justin is like totally dialed in. We get the camera right up on his face. He's like dripping sweat. And he's just having the computer like play it over and over again. You can see like the hollow vid in his eyes. Yes. It's like the classic like enhance, enhance. Totally. Rewind. Play it again. Yes. Play it again. Yeah. He's like playing it in slow motion and like backing it up and going back. (laughs) And then we see what he's watching. We see he's watching in slow motion. We see the rifleman swing its arms up and around and fire backward at the Ostrock, just like on Kittery. And we get a look at the logo painted on the rifleman. It's the Legend Killer. Oh, We got the crosshair and the ghost logo. It's the Legend Killer. (laughs) The cat is out of the bag. The ghost is in the crosshairs, and Justin is pissed off. (laughs) He's become, like, best friends with this dude, right? That's a lot to reconcile. It's probably. I mean, he's like, ah, he swings the arms around. But also, he might not be the only rifleman pilot who swings the arms around. Oh, it's doubtful he's the only rifleman who swings the arms around. But 
it's one of those things where, and we've talked about this before, and even the text has supported it previously in, in the Grey Death trilogy, that good mech warriors, you can even tell the difference between them and other pilots just from the stride of yes. the mech. Yeah. Just the way the neuro helmet interfaces with it. And the reaction we get here from Justin seems to show that like it's like, no, this yeah. is clearly the same rifleman it's the same maneuver that's what he says you yeah. get that whole idea of like this is what he sees every night when he goes to sleep he's just yes. reliving that moment right. over and over again and then it's like now it's happening again right in front of him and he's like this is spot on so while it might be a common trick or tactic for a rifleman pilot justin's like eerily sure is what yeah. it, it, that's how it comes off to me yeah. is he's like no like there's not even him. there's not a doubt in his mind about it right and that's not good for Gray Noten. <laughs> no. Okay. And then, yeah, as soon as the camera zooms in and we see the Legend Killer logo and we're like, oh, no, you jump cut to Justin getting in Gray Noten's car, throwing his duffel bag in like, what's up, dude? And you're like, <laughs> oh, let's go. Oh, yes. And just like us, Gray notices that Justin looks terrible, right? He's like, oh, you, you know, you doing okay, yeah. bud? You know, how you, <laughs> everything all right? Uh, and Justin's like, yeah, I'm good. You know, it's feeling really anxious. <laughs> because Gray knows that he was watching tapes. Yeah, right. He's like already nervous about it, even when Justin first gets in. There's tension here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Both from these two gentlemen and like for us as readers, you're like, is he going to tell him? Is this what he, is he going to do something about it now? What's he going to do? Yeah. Is Gray going to notice? Is Gray going to figure it out that he knows? Yeah. There's all these questions right here. And Gray immediately starts kind of prodding for it. Like, he's like, is the game up? Exactly. They're just like driving. That's what's so funny. Gray's just driving and Justin's like just looking straight ahead. And Gray's like, oh, uh, how you doing? He asks him like, uh, you learn anything about Wolfson from the tapes? And Justin's like, oh, yeah, I watched Wolfson's tapes. He <laughs> tells him that he didn't just watch Wolfson's tapes but he actually reviewed several fights featuring riflemen including the legend killer you can feel the gulp yes in gray's throat yes like he can't quite swallow all the way yeah in his head he's just like play a cool dude it's fine yeah he tries it he throws out the line <laughs> where justin's like yeah you were pretty good in a rifleman and yeah. he's like, oh, you know, I did my share. Yeah. I always like fighting in a rifleman. Yeah. yeah. And he like turns over to look at Justin's response and Justin's eyes are just like burning holes <laughs> into the windshield of the car. And he's like, yeah. oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. 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 Yeah. Yeah. After staring in silence for a while, Justin just asks Gray if he was aware that he lost his arm in a fight with a rifleman. And Gray tries to act like he didn't know, like, oh, well, really, uh, it's a trial. Well, I heard it was an urban, urban mech. mech. Yeah, well, oh, wow, that's, that's, uh, huh. Man, I mean, Justin is just turning the heat on under Gray's <laughs> yeah. pan, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gray's playing with the AC at this point, like, oof, oh, <laughs> hot night on Solaris here. He yeah. does, though. Gray's like, oh, Rifleman, I thought it was an urban mech. And Justin <laughs>, laughs, and he, uh, he, he tells Gray that, that was just a clever bit of fiction. Justin even <laughs> suggests that Wolfson probably chose to fight in a rifleman in an attempt to provoke an emotional reaction within himself, right? He does theorize. He's like, Wolfson probably picked the rifleman because he knows that it was the rifleman that shot me. Everyone does, 
right? That's the thing. Is he's like, great, come on. I mean, he doesn't. This it's so ice cold. This whole yeah. scene. However, Justin's got to. He's got to cool it off a little bit. This is like he's going to get into some trouble if he keeps pressing it. We have kind of a conversation shifts. Yeah, I feel like no music for this part. You just get a lot of the sound of the tires yeah. rolling on pavement. You yeah. know, while gray and gray, like turning the steering wheel, like, like, like turn signals. Tick, 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 tick. I love those shots. I would, I, I would like, and it's like several minutes. Yeah. It's like several minutes of this conversation. It's like a one shot while he's just yeah. like driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, this would be so tight, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. So we learned that they would be fighting in the cafe arena and gray points out, which is known as. The jungle. The jungle. It's the jungle. That's right. It's the Capellan arena. Gray points out that, yeah, the rifleman's a good choice, though. He's like, rifleman kicks in the jungle. That's probably why he brought it. <laughs> good in the jungle. Justin, though, I like, he points out that all that foliage, though, makes that target acquisition difficult. He's like, you can't hit stuff. Too much stuff in the yep. way. Justin Perry's here. He's like, actually, a lot of foliage. So yeah. it's actually better for sh- yep. strikers and short range mechs. He's he does. like, you're also not taking into account that. This kid hates me. He so hates me. He hate he's going to be off his game. <laughs> yeah. He hate me. And <laughs> everyone knows it. Justin expresses that he's hoping that Billy's emotions will get the better of him and that he'll make a mistake. Exactly. He's counting on it. Like you said, he's running hot. He's like, the kid's a hothead. And so he's going to mess up. But, oh, oh, right. But Gray does remind us that Yen Lo Wing only has one real weapon, the big gun. <laughs> Right? He's just got that big gun. He's like, you took all the other stuff out. The Pontiac. The Pontiac, dude. Yeah, you just got the Pontiac. And the claws, I guess. <laughs> and uh, he tells him, though, he's the like, claws. you know, that Pontiac goes at you. You're going to be in trouble. Everybody wants the Pontiac, but they don't tell you the Pontiac got a serious jamming problem. <laughs> There's this whole text here around the auto cannon going out. If the auto cannon goes out, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. We've talked about this before, but Stackpole really doesn't add a lot of fluff. And so I imagine maybe if one was intuitive enough, they might ponder if this is going to be an upcoming plot point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or if they finish this chapter. <laughs> and- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's all he's got, though. What's he going to do without the auto cannon? So... They pull up to the arena. Shoot the medium laser. They pull up to the arena. They're in the typhoon. Gullwing doors. Justin gets out of the car and he tells Gray he appreciates the warning. I feel like he pulls his duffel bag out of the back seat and slings it over his shoulder and uh, kind of turns like, I feel like it's like half turn like over his shoulder while he's, he's like walking up the stairs. While you and Kim are up there in Shin Shang's box, don't go betting against me. This is it. Gray drops him off and he goes in to get ready for the fight. And they're like, oh man, we're just going straight to it though. Like he was like driving him like yep. straight to the fight. Yeah, it's like, here we go. The tension's palpable, right? You feel like Gray Newton's keeping the music off for that drive. That man is in deep thought. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Over yeah. the circumstances he has found himself in. Wait, but we brought this up before though. Hold on. We've been like, what did he think was going to happen? Is he like, oh yeah. What? How could yeah. this? It's like, dude, he's smart. Like, that's the thing is that he knew that this was like an inevitability. And I think that with circumstances we find ourselves in later, that I think it's actually in some ways an answer to this problem that we found here and now in this chapter. But we'll get back to that. It it is funny. We have like Justin, plot, 
development and then like gray picks him up in gray's car and then like we get more plot development on the way to dropping yeah. justin off at the next like plot beat it's so like theatrical it's very oh, good yeah. we're very like it's very tight here it's very economic yes you yes know? yes we are yes yeah we're moving so and because we just immediately cut to justin in the cockpit putting his neuro helmet on and like plugging himself in we get the whole transformation sequence he's plugging it all in he's turning the computers on we're flipping switches we're hitting big chunky buttons screens are flickering dude we learned that justin has a new activation phase okay it's no longer this room is too small it's now my heart belongs to the woman with gold hair man this is so much worse than his old one <laughs> oh wait i meant to ask though okay he says that and that's like his initiation sequence but then there's this chinese word here though and i think that's his actual passcode i think it's like basi juling that's the authorization code hmm. listen there are like two things he says here right proceed with initiation sequence justin smiled my heart belongs to the woman with the hair of gold authorization code basi juling so he has like two phrases here one of them might just be for him then this is what i mean it's very dramatic he changed his passcode he just says this every time he gets in the cockpit he's like my heart belongs to the woman with the hair of gold it's so like gundam wing you know what i mean it's so yeah. emo you're right man this rules like, we stand like an emo king. He's doing it. I love that he's, like, edgy, that he's becoming, like, the anti, like, the 90s anti-hero. It's, yeah, I love it. He's plugging himself in. He thinks for a moment. He's like, dude. He kind of has the moment of realization where he's like, Justin, it was Gray Noten who took your arm, dude. And Justin's like, yeah. I, he's like, I can't think about that right now. We don't have time to think about that. We got to focus on Billy Wolfson, right? <laughs> yes. He's like, we got to use some of this edge, some of this anger for Billy Wilson. We got to worry about Billy. He plugs himself in. He locks his hand onto the controls. And we get a look at the blades on the mech's left hand. Okay, it says three blades on the three last fingers that he added them in honor of Sen Sheng. But on the miniature and on like a lot of the art and stuff, it's not on the fingers. This was changed because it's not as cool. Like, you know, they have them Wolverine style now, right? They're not coming off the ends of the yeah. fingers. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. It says that. I think it makes a lot more sense for it not to be coming off the fingers. That seems like it's way less useful. And it makes sense why Noten might have been taking a piss after it. It's like coming off the fingers. But yeah, it doesn't feel as sturdy, yeah. right? Those fingers could get broken easily. It's much better to have them coming right. off the arm like that. And then there's the whole like articulating the fingers in like the fight it's like we've already talked about the uh power fists the power fists that we yeah. really we're, we we're really not sure that that's still a thing anyway it will always be a thing to me <laughs> so justin's plugged in he's chilling in the cockpit we're just waiting he turns on the comms and we get a little bit of the pre-fight announcer and it says it's not even one of the usual guys it's some other guy you know when your like favorite sports team plays a game that's broadcasted on one of the major networks. And so you get a completely different set of announcers than the ones you're used to. It's so annoying, by the way. <laughs> I'm like, I want my guys. I don't want like the NBC guys or whatever. 
anyway. Yeah, they brought the big wigs in for this one. Yeah, exactly. They yeah, exactly. This is like prime time is what I'm saying. It's playing on a network and the announcer is telling the audience about how Justin and Billy got into that big argument that night in Valhalla. Everyone heard about it. He's getting a little a little pre-fight and he's like, "Oh, they got in this big argument in the Valhalla club that one night." Undoubtedly in any kind of fighting sport, the like stories surrounding it or the mythos are some of the uh, the best parts, and so I'm sure that... Oh, yeah, they're going to make money off this beef. They know Oh, it. yeah, and I'm sure that the mythos surrounding it is, like, so blown out of proportion. It doesn't resemble the truth at yeah. all. Yeah, good point. Yeah, people are like, oh, man, they had... It was, it, it was like a huge, like, street fight, dude. Like, everyone got involved. Yeah. It got totally right. wild. The cops showed up. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we learn that Justin has accrued six victories so far. And he made it to ranked, dude. He went platinum. Justin, he made it out of pools. He's in top eight now. So that's top cool. Eight. He's in top eight. Yeah, he's six out of eight. He's in sixth that's place. That's cool. That's impressive. That puts him one like, rank below Wolfson. I mean, think about that. Justin came into town, punched a dude in a vindicator, and is now in the top eight. Yeah. Like, that's insane. Six and oh. Just raw anger at Hans Davion. That's what that can do for you. you know, a big part of it is because he's drawing these big name opponents, right? That's kind of pushing him up. He didn't just grind in the lower leagues. Instead, he's <laughs> like, nah, dude, I'm going straight for like the heavyweight, right? He just like pulled up like, right. I'm going for them Valhalla boys. Yeah. Oh, I want to have a special shout out. Okay. Currently in the Valhalla club, we are having a bit of a Solaris tournament ourselves. And a lot of the first matchups are just now getting their fights in. I recently had a fight with David Cerberus, one of the hosts of the Valhalla Club, in his charger named El Tion del Miel, which I believe he said was translated roughly to Honey Badger. And it really was quite the honey badger. He came at me. That thing was moving at 5'8 with mask and a supercharger. The thing moved 13 hexes while running with the supercharger and mask engaged, right? Dang. And he came after me. He had... Uh, so this custom thing, this thing was uh, terrifying. It had a hatchet, four medium pulse lasers, and two laser AMS. The AMS didn't really help him much up against my pulse lasers and my marauder, but he came for me and immediately got my back and got some good licks in. However, I have to say, <clears throat> Cerberus, he fought very honorably, and he actually had a chance to get my back again, and he was like, you know what? I want this to be a good game. I don't want it to end here. And in the end, I ended up pulling out the win, but it really was because Cerberus was an honorable fighter. And I just want to shout him out here. Uh, it was an awesome match, and I hope that there's more awesome matches to come from this tournament. It's a great time. We're trying to stream the matches over at the Valhalla Club Discord so if that's something you might be into, watching some Mega Mech matches from some of your big podcasters, go check it out. An awesome match. I thought you said you were in a Marauder. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was there watching it. I still have a match coming up, so we'll see how my Annihilator fares if he doesn't explode along <laughs> the way. But head over to the Valhalla Club Discord, check it out, join us there, and have a lot of fun. Absolutely. So... The announcers are talking about how it's going to be a tough fight for Justin. 
because the rifleman is so much more heavily armed. I was just going to say, I think this fight's actually a little bit more even than the announcers are kind of making it out to be. The rifleman, it's a heavy mech for sure. And it does have a dazzling amount of weapons, but really can't fire. Not the rifleman that this likely is, which is probably the 3N, right? What McCall used in the uh, Grey Death Legion trilogy. Two large lasers two AC-5s, and two medium lasers. That is a lot of firepower, but man, this thing's got 10 single heat sinks, and it can barely handle firing all of them for any sustained (laughs) period of time. I would actually go as far to say that that the Centurion's not a bad matchup by any means, especially with with Justin's modification. Yeah. But you also got to think in the idea of the world here, Gray Noten used the rifleman to climb on top. So I'm sure right. a lot of influence on the discussion around fights and things like that. Anytime a rifleman's brought in, because he was a recent champ, that they're like, oh, this mech can do wonders in it. So if you're looking at it just strictly at the tail of the tape there, they're going to give the rifleman the edge. Good point. I, and I do think the rifleman does have... In edge. I'm not saying it does it. I'm only saying that for all intents and purposes, it is the rifleman's got an edge, but it's a pretty fair fight. And there's not a lot of heavy to medium matchups that I would say the same thing about even in this era. And you're right. The rifleman does appear to probably have a little more extra gusto because of Noten's reign with it. Something to be of note, though, and we'll talk about this a little later it's often suspected that Gray Noten doesn't have a stock rifleman, though. And it's kind of one of those things that there's dozens of fan theories about whether oh. that's true or not. But we'll get into that. We will touch on that later. That's cool. He's got some special stuff. Maybe. It is mentioned that Wolfson has never fought in a rifleman before, uh, which is interesting. This guy's never fought in a rifleman before, by the way. That's <laughs> a disadvantage, right? That's a hell of a disadvantage, I would say. I mean, I'm sure he's practiced a lot, but this is his first like legit fight in a rifleman. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know if you would go up against the dude who has made it his life's goal to murder you in a mech you're not familiar (laughs) with, right? It's kind of long odds that like he's gonna be that upset over it being the mech that took his arm, if that is what is going on here with Wolfson, which it does seem like that's the case i mean capet and those dudes are stupid enough that they'd be like <laughs> yeah the rifle bit it'll you know it'll scare him he'll be so spooked they're dumb <laughs> you guys are selling it though no i like like i'm getting excited for the fight i'm like man this is a good fight though you're right let's go we're still this chapter still going a green light flashes and the match begins and you're like oh okay and yeah it's like yeah here we go and we see that these large bronze doors begin to open the chamber he's in starts to open up to the jungle beyond i do like justin sees that these large ornate beautiful chinese doors have been damaged by some munitions over the years and he gets like legitimately irritated it's pretty funny there's this whole (laughs) moment where he's like ah he just has an appreciation for uh antiques he has a harrison ford moment he does it's like it's it belongs in a museum exactly he's like that's messed up So Justin begins to step into the jungle and he has a moment where he's reminded of the rainforests on Spica. They brought up Spica before. That's where he fought 
he took part in a major like offensive or something. Something happened on Spica, and he won a medal. He saved a bunch of people. We see that, unlike in the factory, however, he switches to his mag scan. Remember, he couldn't use it before, but now he's like, oh yeah, flicks the mag scan on. It makes sense. And imagine thermals in all of the like warm, exactly. like jungle, like wouldn't work very well. Yep. He sets it so he's like, I'm just going to look for anything that shows us a mech signature. That's all I need. And we know our boy's been watching tape. So Justin has a pretty good idea of where Billy's going to come from. He's watched all of his matches in the jungle. He says that he's got it kind of mapped out in his head. He's like, he's probably over in that clearing. So I'll come through the little river that we'll probably meet up here. So here we go. Yenlo Wong. He takes it through the brush, right? And we see Justin ends up in this sandy riverbed. It says he's kind of traveling along this riverbed. And this is it. We see the rifleman pops out and Justin immediately though, catches a large laser to the right arm. Not just the laser, Billy pops him with the autocannon too. This is what happens though, Justin is traveling, Rifleman pops out, boom, boom, hits him with the laser and the autocannon, just like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the arm he wants to hit either. That's his Pontiac arm. Yeah. No, no. So you're like, oh man, here we go. This is where uh, Justin, in a stunning display of hubris, uh, takes aim with his autocannon, and just before uh, opening up a radio line and telling Wolfson, quote, it's all over, Billy. At this range, you're history. And <laughs> uh, Justin tightens his finger on the trigger. Nothing happens, of course. It's a bold statement Come for on. a man whose weapon isn't working. We knew what was going to happen here. Yep. <laughs> we had it built up. The foreshadowing was literally pouring off the page. The Pontiac yep. jam. The Pontiac jammed, which is, as Noten said, not good. <laughs> not good. That is his primary weapon system. And so everything I said about this being a fair fight has just gone out the window. <laughs> and I love how Stackpole transitions us from the Kellhounds chapter where we're having a lot of fun. We have a joke that's paid off right at the very end to using Justin finding out about Gray, all of this to drive you immediately back into this like serious tension moment and setting you up for this fight to pay off this autocannon jamming. You're worried as soon as it you're like, oh no, what happens? I love Stackpole uses the fact that Justin did his homework on this guy as a point of tension, right? Yep. Up until now, Justin's just been kind of like, uh, how do I win? I'm just going to kill the other dude, okay? But this time he was like, like, I'm getting to the top. Like, these guys are real. I've got to actually... Yeah. He's like doing the tape dog thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's like this point of tension. He's like, clearly, Justin's like a little bit more nervous about this fight. Even if he doesn't like the guy, he at least respects. He's like, like this guy's at least good enough that I can't just go in there bullheaded and come out with the W. Yep. And then having it all pay off here. And I mean, we're not even through the fight. I mean, this is just the start. No. But it's already <laughs> hell of a way to end a chapter. Air. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the end of the chapter, by the way. Yeah, that's how it ends. It's very funny. This chapter goes from Justin watching the hollow vids to his autocannon jamming. Yeah. Right? It's quite a distance. He he, he, uh, he traveled here. Very economic. We, we made it. Chapter 30. <laughs> chapter 30. The Pontiac jammed. Pontiac jammed. 
And we'll have to find out how Justin gets out of this jam in the next chapter. Chapter 31. So we open with a scene of Kim and Gray. They're up in Sen Shang's booth, right? They were watching the fight and they see what's going on, that his gun has jammed. Kim is freaking out. You get this scene, she's digging her fingernails into Gray's arm and like she's frantic, like, what's happening, Gray? What's going on? And Gray's just like, my God. He like drops <laughs> his drink even because Gray, of course, realizes that the autocannon is jammed right? He knows what's going on. And Kim's like, oh no, he's got nothing else to work with. But I love this. Gray's like, he remembers. He's like, he's got those nails, his nails and his brain. (laughs) He was all against the idea of any melee in combat. And Justin knew if it was coming up, he was in a bad spot. So let's be honest. Noten was right. If you can avoid melee, you really should, because it is Messy business, getting in close, not to mention dishonorable. Queer? Aff. <laughs> and so it makes sense that to be at the top, you have to be masterful, and you, you don't take risks that you don't have to. So it makes sense Grey Noten is kind of opposed to the idea of like even bringing a melee weapon, especially on account of his signature mech has nowhere to put one. So we cut back to Justin, who uh, is now obviously in a lot of trouble because that rifleman already had more guns than he did (laughs) from the jump. And that was before the Pontiac stopped working. That's right. He's down to a solemn front-facing medium laser and a rear-facing medium laser, which uh, isn't nothing, but it's really not going to cut it here. Not against the rifleman. (laughs) Get it? Cut it. (laughs) That's great. So Justin starts moving, right? He takes off in the Centurion, obviously. So Wolfson starts chasing him and like shooting at him. I thought it was interesting though. He had the distinct feeling that Wolfson merely wanted to bracket him. Like he wasn't actually hitting him. He was just like shooting at him. Brent, okay, listen, the word bracket comes up a lot. Bracket fire, bracketing. Brent, what does he mean by this? Bracketing, if you look it down on any keyboard, you see a set of brackets. It's uh, not unlike that. It's a military term. In this case, I think he's isolating Justin's mech, right? As in he's firing on one side or the other, hence the brackets, and therefore preventing him from going somewhere he doesn't. He either gets hit by those rounds that are shooting where he's not, but wants to go, or he stays in his current channel, right? So he's being isolated. I see, of course. Oh, similar to how Justin, he dummy fired the LRMs in the first match, just exactly to like control like the that. movement of his opponent. Previously, that was something that was notable for Justin being a good pilot, right? As in like yeah, being able to exploit the LRMs that way to do that to his opponent. So I like this here because it's kind of alluding to Stackpole showing like, hey, Billy Wolfson isn't just a pushover. He didn't get in fifth place by accident. I like this where Justin is running in the Centurion and he kind of gets away for a second and you see he like looks down at the arm, right? He like takes the damaged right arm and he like holds it up so that he can inspect it. 
and we see that armor has melted over the exhaust port, right? It, it appears that the laser melted the armor panel and then it blocked the exhaust port. And so it won't cycle. It's like a safety feature. And he's like, oh man, that, you know, that'll take like a week to fix. This sucks. So <laughs> it, it is interesting though, the manner in which it jammed, which is, I would say this is, this gun is prone to jamming, but I was like, is this actually the most common form of like, the, I was like, actually, I feel like it's a, something with the cycling, the ammunition probably gets messed, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, this is just an unfortunate thing that happened here, which is his armor melted over his exhaust port. That does seem like a flaw though, right? It shouldn't <laughs> be that easy for the armor to melt over the exhaust port, right? Well, if it wasn't for the fact that we learn that Justin is using caseless ammunition here, well, we'll, we'll, we'll more on that later. But if it wasn't for that fact, I would assume that the exhaust port meant ejection port, in which case something obstructing the ejection port on really any firearm that has one is absolutely 100% of the time going to cause a jam on any weapon system from the 1911 of old Terra to the auto cannons that this rifleman is uh, sending downrange towards Justin here. And so if that was the case, I would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And maybe the issue here is that the ejection port here is too small and that's why it's got a jamming problem. And so cases are getting hung up there. But an exhaust port, I'm assuming this is where... I'm not sure how exactly this, maybe this is a way of venting heat. It, it's odd to me, but nonetheless, interesting that this is the cause of the problem. Yes. Very unfortunate. The gun jammed and in a weird way, but he's got those claws and his brain, which he is a dangerous man. He has a dangerous mind, right? He's a killer. So Justin keeps going. He keeps pushing deeper into the rainforest, right? He's like, I just got to get away. And yet he gets some distance on him. Oh, I like, we cut back to Gray Noten watching the fight. And, oh, remember this bit where there's like that other guy who's like running his mouth and it's like irritating <laughs> Gray? You know, what, what is he? He's like, you should have never modified that thing. He's like armchair mech warrior over here and Gray's <laughs> yeah. like getting all like irritated with him. I love this. Yeah, you're hearing a lot of like the, if I was in there, yeah. uh, statements coming from this guy. Yeah, he's like, that rifleman's going to kill him. Oh, Noten, he puffs up. He's like, Noten asked the guy, is that your guess or your opinion? And But <laughs> dude tells him that he used to fight with the 10th Lyran regulars, and he would regularly send Merrick Centurions home in pieces. So that's pretty cool. This dude tore up some Merrick Centurions in his day. <laughs> oh, right. Noten makes a bet, right? He asks him if he would accept a bet for 1,000 sea bills. Yeah, he hits him with the, if you're so confident, let's put some money down on this. Yeah. Let's make it interesting. I do also like the fact that the guy's like, you should have never modified that. It's the mech that I blew up a ton of times in their stock configuration. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is a little like, uh, <laughs> these are conflicting ideals you're holding here. I like that this little bit ends with Noten smiled and surveyed the audience. Anyone else? <laughs> like the scene cuts with him turn around like anyone else, huh? you know, come on, let's go. He believes in Justin, really. He makes a bet that Justin will still win. He does. He still believes. So we cut back to Justin. He's still like examining the exhaust port. Right, Brent, this is where he mentions the caseless ammo and whatnot. Right. So we got to talk about caseless ammo for a second. 
I would actually love for someone to write in if they know the answer to this, but as Aaron pointed out before we started the show, caseless ammo isn't invented until 3055. And, well... Invented for mechs until 3055, because we've already seen small arms in the Battletech universe using caseless ammunition. But mech scale isn't invented to 3055, right? But that doesn't mean, I I was like, oh, well, maybe there's experimental. But I went and looked, and I was like, no, there's actually not experimental AC-20 autocannon ammunition in this era, that doesn't mean that the new Avalon Institute of Science didn't cook something up. From what we understand, though, this is an off-the-shelf Pontiac product, the Pontiac 100. Classic. Classic. I like to think it's still got the red Chevron, the Pontiac logo on it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And to kind of bring it back to when you were talking about the ejection port versus a vent port, you know, I feel like caseless may have been just a term to kind of flavor the rounds. Because Stackpole goes on to explain how the vent port is needed because of the gases produced. Since it doesn't have cased ammunition, it just releases that. So I wonder if it's just something because we're still early on in Battletech, both tech and lore, that we're using this kind of flavorfully similar to when we had ECM come up in the Great Death Trilogy. It's very possible. I'd love for someone that maybe read some source book back in the day that's no longer that's got some answer some old shrapnel or uh battle technology clip i do wonder if there's an answer to this question maybe not maybe it's just uh, a little anachronistic interesting caseless ammunition i didn't know any of this yeah the exhaust port's been fused shut and uh because of this justin decides to eject all the ammo so he dumps it all out he doesn't need it anymore and now it can't cause like an ammo explosion so that's smart i like this you see this a lot the mech warriors like dumping the ammo. It's cool, right? If your weapon is messed up, you just you just dump the ammo. That way it can't blow up. So Justin flicks his scanners over to infrared and he notices that Billy is running a little hot. It's a tad warm. You know, he's in that rifleman. He's just been pulling the like holding the triggers down, just ripping on the lasers. So yeah, he He's melting alive in there, right? He's sweating. Do not have enough heat sinks. Not the three N anyway. No, no way. So if they're running hot, it means that, you know, this is a good time to make a move because their options are now more limited. So Justin pushes the Centurion into a run and begins circling the rifleman. It says he's like orbiting the rifleman, right? He's like circle strafing it at like full speed, but he's slowly tightening the circle as he comes around and Wolfson's in the rifleman and he's just like spinning around. It is funny. I love, he's just spinning in place, shooting his lasers, right? And that's what's so funny. He doesn't want to waste the ammo. So he's shooting the lasers. So this dude's cooking, but it says (laughs) all he accomplishes is burning an open kill zone 300 meters around his rifleman, which is very funny, (laughs) right? He just ends up burning a circle all around where he's standing, like this open field. (laughs) <laughs> Which is pretty cool. The imagery is pretty cool. You just see like all these like all this brush and stuff getting cut off as like these large lasers and autocans are roaring. Yeah. So Justin, he just keeps slowly tightening the circle. And we just get this, he's like coming around. Oh, but this is where we cut back to Gray. And Gray is he's watching the Holovid. He's watching Justin circle in on the rifleman. And he sees as the rifleman is beginning to start like flipping his arms, right? You see the arms start to come up 
And Gray's like, no, right? He's like, not again, Justin. God, not what I did to you, Justin. Just like that, we get a, a small little Freudian slip right which, there next to Kim. Which this is really out of character for Gray. It yeah. is. And I think this really kind of sells the idea Stackpole's been building to that Gray has blurred the line between his planning and friendship with Indeed. Justin. I feel like Gray's whole intention here was never to be friends with Justin. Right. And now this slip shows that he failed there. I What a great analysis. I totally agree, Aaron. Totally. That is indeed what I see here, which is an interesting conundrum we found ourselves in. And Kim's right here. She's like still clutching his arm, right? Right. You know what's funny? That's when he, the, the, the rifleman hasn't even started, but Gray's like, when he sees Justin coming in from behind, because Justin's going to try to stab him from behind, right? You realize he's like circling around the rifleman. He's trying to get this like melee kill, but- He's going to attack the rifleman from behind again. It's like, oh no, Stackpole. He was like, dude, he's going <laughs> to have to, he's going to have to get the rifleman from behind. Just like the beginning. I'm like, yeah, no, this is cool. It's a, it's, it's like the rifleman revenge. <laughs> the flip arms plot point. <laughs> I love it though. It's the, the scene up in the booth though. I see it in like slow motion and it's like, they're all watching it and the rifleman's arms start to tip up and you see the old man behind gray, like, yes, like clutching, you know, he's like, and like Kim starts tearing up. You see Kim start to cry as like the dude is like, yes. And, uh, this is when this little bit ends. Gray Noten says, better I had killed you, Justin, better I had killed you better i had killed you and this linked with the scene previous to this in the car ride the waters are rising around gray newton he is in high water and if he doesn't do something he is going to be drowning and we'll have to see what repercussions come from this so we cut back to justin and from his perspective we see the rifleman's arms start to flip up and start to swing up and around so as soon as Justin sees this, he plants his foot and he pivots like really hard when he's like gunning straight for the back of the rifleman. As soon as he starts to come, he breaks and like, boom, like starts moving and he like goes straight for the kill, but he's still got a little distance. Uh, Wolfson is able, he gets the guns all the way around and he rips into Justin. I mean, he like, he absolutely like blasts him. It's like a huge risk, but fortunately for Justin, uh, none of the shots are fatal, right? This was this was the gamble, right? He could have taken an AC round to the cockpit, but he didn't. Yeah. Well, and I feel like paired with what Justin noticed earlier, how the rifleman was running so hot it could no longer move, that he was just waiting for the chance to bait out these shots to keep him hot, to keep him locked in one position, knowing he's only going to have mm. one chance at this. And he exploits exactly. it. Yeah, he takes an AC round to the chest, like right here. Yeah, he just needed one chance. The thing about this, though, is the rifleman's arms, they're very long. Those guns come out on the barrels, right? Yeah, they are. And so Justin's tactic here is he knows he just needs to get in there, and then those rifle barrels can't hurt him. Oh, dude, it's so cool. So Justin, like, tightens the left hand into a claw. You know, he, like, like tightens it up, and he, 
Ugh! and he jams it straight into the back of the rifleman. And it's like, he just like, ah, and just like jams it into it. He absolutely just like eviscerates this thing with his like claws. It's so cool. Usually when I'm reading these battle tech books, I see it in like this realistic film style. Like it's, it's like cinematic, right? I'm seeing like a film. I don't know what it is about this fight in particular, but this fight I see, you know, in the first Kill Bill, they do like the anime yeah. middle scene with yeah. Oren Ishii. Yeah. And it's kind of like her backstory, but it's done in kind of an a, a very like an ultra gritty anime style. I see this entire scene in kind of that super ultra real gritty anime style. And I don't know why. I have no idea why my brain does this, but <laughs> I just see I see like when he shoves the fist in and like those claws come back out. And like all the coolant like sprays out, it's like all like over exaggerated. Like yeah, it's real just Ninja like, Scroll moment. Exactly, exactly. Ninja Scrolls is a great example. Yes. Oh, it's an, oh yeah, it's an OVA. <laughs> it's an OVA. Yes, exactly. Oh, dude, Warrior on Guard, the OVA. Oh man, <laughs> it would be sick. That'd be tight. So Justin actually punches the engine shielding. Right, he punches straight into the fusion engine. And like sets off an explosion. This is the uh, second instance of stack pulling. We see another reactor breach. He does the the fusion reactor like decompresses or whatever. The plasma blossomed into a gold white ball of roiling energy. Lifted the oh. rifleman up as if the sixty ton mech were a toy. Like it's it like lifts off the ground. It stack pulls. It stack pulls. Oh, and I love it. Not only that, he like, ugh, like gets in there, gets in the engine, and then he closes the fist around the gyro, and he like rips it out like the Predator. Like, oh, he holds <laughs> yeah. it up. It's so cool. Yeah, and then the rifleman explodes, and the, the explosion is so violent. It's like lifted into the air before collapsing into a heap at the feet of Justin Centurion. It's awesome. It explodes. Here lies Billy Wilson- Broken and defeated. Oh, yeah. He's donezo. <laughs> Rip. Billy Rip. Wilson. They're going to be so sad at the Valhalla Club. Yeah, on 420 of all days. How sad is that? So then we cut to that television personality. It's like a post-interview, which is kind of funny, right? As soon as you see the rifleman explode, uh, like slams into the thing, and it's like on fire, and it's like... Well, that was your interview with Justin Jiang. And it's like, oh, that's so funny. We don't see the interview. I'm sure it's just Justin going, if you're a fed rat, you're going to be a dead rat. <laughs> <laughs> the host is like, and what a scathing condemnation of Federated Sons fighters it was. And you're like, wow, he just like picked up the mic and like talked trash. And then we see he does the whole, he pushes through the crowd and heads back to the dressing room. Gray Noten is in here. It's so cool. Justin's, he's like pulled, like he's got the towel around his neck, like in the locker room. Like what yeah. he asked Gray, he's like, ever come that close before? Yeah. And Gray throws <laughs> him a towel. And he's like, nah, you've come closer than any mech warrior I know. In my head, the movie switchbacks to like the color grading of Top Gun. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> Justin tells him that it's not closer than I've been before. <laughs> he tells Gray that the tactic that Wilson used was just like the rifleman he fought on Kittery. Problem with that tactic, though, is uh, it's got a serious flaw. And they're like, oh, yeah, the rifleman has weak back armor, 
right? Which I guess does does the rifleman have notably weak back armor? Is that true? Yeah, it's got two in the left and right torso. <laughs> oh, so it takes nothing to get through it. Right? <laughs> I've seen aluminum foil with better armor coverage. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I like he does tell Gray this little story about how his brother Dan told him a story about this aerospace fighter Fitzpatrick who's in the Kellhounds. <laughs> Our boy. Yeah, and how Fitzpatrick did this cool maneuver and he flipped around and shot a rifleman in the back. Dirt pigs will fall for anything. <laughs> Justin assumes that Billy must have learned about what happened to him on Kittery and attempted to repeat it. And he tells Gray, you know what they say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And he throws his cooling vest into a hamper and he asks where Kim is. This is so dramatic, dude. It's awesome. <laughs> Justin asks where Kim is and Gray smiles and tells him that she's going to catch up with us later. So Gray tells Justin that they'll take his typhoon and Kim has a surprise for him. And the chapter ends with Justin getting into the shower before telling Gray that he loves surprises. <laughs> he seems like he's in a mood for a surprise right now. There's a lot going on here. A lot to unpack. Yeah. Another one down. He won. He did it. He won. Another great Solaris fight too. The auto cannon jammed, but he killed the rifleman with his claws, dude. This is probably the most iconic Yin Lo Wang moment, at least in this trilogy. I agree. It is. This is like the thing. He circles around and like, ah, and like stabs him with the claws. It's awesome. But I love Stackpole here. He's like, listen, we know you're here for the mech fight. He's like, I'm also going to like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make huge plot advances throughout the yeah. fight itself. And I love. He just wastes. There's, there's just. The economy of storytelling, again, is just like here. He's like, oh yeah, mid-fight, we're going to have a Floydian slip from uh, Gray. And it's like, oh, that's increasing the odds. Oh, and Kim, by the way, Kim. Kim's sitting next to him, okay? So Kim's going to hear that. So now Kim's got to go. We know how Gray Noten plays, right? Yep. Like, the tension here at the end is like palpable when he's like, oh, Kim's doing something. Kim's going to catch up with us later. The dramatic irony here is like, oh, what does that mean? Because we know Gray Noten knows, and we know Justin knows who Gray Noten is. It's a, it's a wild situation. Justin's in this corner, and so is Gray Noten. And who knows how this whole thing's going to turn out. I love how Stackpole spends the last two chapters going like, listen, I got a cool mech fight for you and all, but I'm not going to let you forget about where the real tension's going to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's the great thing is that there's tension in the fight, too. It's like, oh, it's yeah. so dynamic what's going on here. There's tension in the locker room. Tension on, <laughs> tension on the battlefield. tension. Yeah. It is. I love the steamy locker room scene. So another one down. Another member of the Capellan Mafia in the dirt. Capet stays mad. That roster's thinning out. Yeah, he doesn't have many dudes left. Not really much of a mafia anymore. I'm guessing, you know, they're all going to go back to Valhalla and be all sad again, right? The Capellan leftovers. Yeah. yeah. But I'm excited because he said that Kim has a surprise. And we'll have to find out exactly what's in store for Justin in the next chapter.
Chapter 32. So we open with Kim Sorensen. She's back at that restaurant. She's having a coffee. She's talking to that speaker again, right? She's sitting at the booth. She's sus. I'll say it. And it's interesting, though, because she has come here to report that Justin is innocent. She comes here to tell her handler that she overheard Gray Noten. She heard the things he said about how, not what I did to you, better I had killed you. And so it's funny. I love how the guy talks. It's like implication. Noten was the rifleman pilot who wounded Zhang on Kittery. Noten was off planet at the time. Conclusion. Your deduction is probably correct. It's funny. I like that bit of flavor there. It's very matter of fact. She asks him if she should tell Xiang, but they say no. Her handler says no, not on my authorization. Information will be forwarded fastest by Comstar. Proceed normally. So she's been instructed not to tell Justin. We to get this moment of reflection, though. She's sitting here drinking the coffee and thinking about how he's become so bitter. He tries to hide it from her, to put on a good face, to be strong, his whole bit. She's just thinking about how she's really worried about him, how his hatred will consume him. And she is disappointed that she can't tell him. She wishes she could. She wants to get him pardoned. Well, we have a moment. She's thinking to herself that, I hope I can tell him soon. It may be the only chance to save Justin Allard from Justin Jiang. I thought this was nice. We actually get this moment where you see that Kim really has come to care for Justin, though. I believe it. So she steps out of the cafe, buttons up her coat. It's cool. You know, we get like a light rain. It's so noir, right? I feel like this is a cloak and dagger. And she has to go in that alley. Remember, we saw her path earlier. She has to go through that apartment building down the dark alley. So we see her. She starts to take that path again. As she's going down the alley, she feels someone like grab her from behind. To her credit, though, she does a like a takedown. She like reach up and locks the wrist and like, you know, twist the thumb and like, you know, spins the dude down. She manages to throw off the first attacker, but before she can even get her bearing, she's struck from behind and falls to the ground. She gets hit hard and she hits the ground. It's raining, right? There's like dirty puddles and these men, whoever they are, they pick her up and drag her to the side and throw her on some steps. You see a booted toe slid roughly beneath her right shoulder, to flip her over onto her back. You see, Justin, I told you she had a surprise for you. Like, oh no, it's Gray Noten. It's Justin. He's here. And like, you see Kim looks up at him, but he's like, obscured in the light. She can just see a silhouette, but she feels the aura, right? And she realizes his hand, right? His metal fist. He's the one who hit her from behind. That's why she got hit so hard. It was like, oh no. It was Justin who struck her. And here it is. The moment we knew it was coming. Justin asks her, where were you just now? What were you doing? And she claims that she was just having coffee. But Noten says that everyone knows that that little bistro is the place where Davion agents get orders. He said that Sen Shang even confirmed it. And again, Justin asks her what she was doing there. Answer me! And this is where... Kim looks at Noten, and she's like, don't believe him, Justin. I love you. Noten is the one who, ugh. And Justin hits her again. It's brutal. Yeah, he like slaps her with his hand. And he's like, whore. 
It's terrible. He goes to hit her again. He stops himself and he's just like, you manipulated me, not for yourself, but for them. And he points at like the Davion sector. This is crazy. It's terrible. She's crying. She's like coming unraveled. She's in shock, obviously. She starts whimpering, obviously. And it's so sad. And she hears the click of the pistol being armed, cold metal pressed to her temple. And you hear Justin, no. He tells Noten not to kill her. He says, take this whore to the Davian representative on this world. You see, this like moment, Kim realizes, oh man, like it's over. It's really sad. And Justin says he has a message for Prince Hans Davian and Quintus Allard. The chapter ends with Justin saying that you have driven me from you, yet you seek to maintain your hold on me. I am not yours. I have never been yours. I will never be yours. Spare me your lies and plots and false information. You refuse to call me friend. Now know me to be your worst enemy. And that's the end of the chapter. It's a heavy one. Normally we like our ability to cut up and make light of a lot of this stuff, but I feel like this won't be the last time that we deal with some very heavy subject matter in these novels as we go through them. And this one, you really feel it. I mean, you feel all the way. You feel how Justin's gone off the ledge. Feel Kim's struggle all the way through as that weight of the responsibility that you could see she was shouldering to keep Justin on the path for Quintus and the Federated Sons and how all of her work and her emotions that she invested in that are gone in an instant. It's over. We knew this would come up eventually, but this is, it's quite violent. Justin is monstrous. He's very scary, right? He's dangerous. And exactly like she's was worried about, like he's become too hateful and vengeful and he's not getting better. You know, he's becoming a worse person. This thing is consuming him and he's unraveling. He's turned a corner, but it's the wrong corner. Yeah. And it's a very visceral turn that Stackpole uses here, where till this point, or we have spent our time in Justin's corner all the way through. Well, he's been coming this way. Yeah. But as the reader, you're really expecting Justin to, you're any day now, he's going to pull his head out of his ass is kind of what I think most, how most people read this, right? Any day now. And we get to this scene and you go, maybe he won't. Yeah. Yeah. Like you keep, I I know as I was reading it for the first time, and you're, you know, the whole time Justin's on Solaris, you kind of have this idea of like everything that happened with the trial and all of that was done over the top of him, but never with the idea that they were going to completely throw him away. It really felt like on Hans's side of the plan that this was a temporary measure. They were sweeping some things under the rug. Yeah, it was a moment that they had to remove Justin. But it all it, uh, to me, it felt like they were going to try to bring him back into the fold. And through right. the interactions Kim had with Quintus, it solidified that for me. And Stackpole exactly. uses this chapter to say, like, maybe he's lost to that plan. Like, that, that there is no coming back for Justin. That they pushed him too far. And his reaction was so visceral that he's lost full control. I'll do my regular check-in with you here. Where do you see this going? What do you think 
Justin comes back from this in, in any the way that anyone can come back from this, right? There's some doors you open and you can't close them again, right? Yeah. Is this Justin's killing the younglings moment? <laughs> right. That's that's what, what what do you think, Aaron? So my theory for this is very shaky. Imagine so. There was a part when I read this that it's almost too shocking to have from Justin. Because, like I said, Stackpole has been setting a lot of this up. And I feel like he's led you down this path. But considering where we are, we're we're early on in this trilogy, the importance of Justin. To me, part of this felt that there was the rage, there was the anger that he had. To me, I felt like there was a performative aspect to this. That Justin is a warrior. And prior to this, he found out about Grey Noten. And I feel like he kind of placed Grey Noten as a target that he needs to be extremely careful around. And I'm basing this entire theory on that he beats Kim. And at the end, Grey aims to kill her. And right. Justin spares her at the end. Yeah, This felt like he had completely come unhinged. He had completely lost everything that he was. There's multiple signs that back not what you say up, but that he did come unhinged, right? Yeah. We find out that he hits her with his robot arm, right? Yeah. In the uh, back. He, he, yeah. he bludgeons her, okay? And then we learn, he breaks her jaw. Yeah, the second time. The second hit. And the act of mercy is really just a way for him to get the last word in on Hans Davion. Now, I'm not, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. That was kind of my thought is that like Justin hasn't had any problem being vocal and passing those messages along. It's and true. so for me, I almost felt like if he showed that extreme and not saying that in any part, was he fully in control of that in front of Gray Noten, that Gray Noten may feel safer. And that would give Justin the opportunity to strike at him. So what you're saying here is. He's playing a waiting game with Gray, and he's trying to show him he's real, and he know he doesn't know what's up because he's playing the long game on trying to get revenge on Gray Noten. Is exactly. that kind of your? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I guess that would be my. That would be it. Now to follow up with the the other talk of like, has he lost the ability? to go back to the Federated Sons. I feel like that part of that rage and everything that's going on in this is a clue that that life is completely behind him. Like whatever, whatever plans are brewing aren't going to materialize. But all in all, like I said, I feel like th there's part of me and maybe it's part of me that wants to believe Justin beat Kim so savagely, but spared her to keep Grey Noten from killing her. Okay. An interesting hypothesis. Grey was going to shoot her. Oh, and remember, Kim was going to say, she was like, Grey Noten was the one who, and Grey's the one who hits her there. Like, ugh. Like, yeah. so she can't say it. He knows what she was going to say. What's funny is, so does Justin. So does Justin. But no matter what happens with all of this, Stackpole did not pull his punch, but has taken us on one hell of a ride. And even though this chapter ends us on a low note, we'll have to find out how Stackpole builds us back up again when we continue on in Warrior On Guard.
this was Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent and Aaron. As always, we wanted to thank the author, Michael A. Stackpole, and all the other writers and artists who work so hard to keep Battletech alive. We'd like to thank Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. And we'd like to thank the fans, the listeners. Thank you, because we are thankful. Yes, thank you, guys. Thank you. We have an email, advice at heat.management. If you have any questions, corrections, concerns, please, advice at heat.management. We're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at of Mechs and Men. And please feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. That always helps. We've got some reviews lately, and we wanted to shout out some of these reviews we got. Like this one from Bob Willie Nelson says, it's not Steinbeck, but that's a good thing. <laughs> Bob Willie Nelson says, so this is my favorite Battletech-related podcast. It has just the right amount, summary, balanced with analysis, and reaction and review, which is actually a very tricky thing to manage. That's true. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> and Thank you for noticing. Yes. You can tell the hosts are good friends because they have very real chemistry without falling into the trap of too many inside jokes and references. Who, these goons? Come on. <laughs> if you have any interest in the fiction side of Battletech, this is a must-listen. How nice is that? It's incredible. Thank you. This one made my eyes watery, dude. Thanks, Bob Willie Nelson. Like, this seriously. is beautiful. Thank you. If, thank you. We had another one from Smack. Which Smack left a while ago. And it was one that I wasn't able to see till recently. And so we did want to make sure we came back and touched on it because we really appreciate that you left it. Oh, yes. Thank you, Smack. That's true. We didn't forget about you. Yeah, shout outs to Smack. He says, I'm a hardcore Battletech lore boy, and a lot of my fellow Battletech friends only read source books, and I've been dying to hear some discussion about the actual books. Me too. <laughs> and you guys scratched an itch I've had for a while, and you do it while being funny. I also happen to be misophonic, and so I'm picky about audio quality, and you guys get a thumbs up from me. Keep up the awesome work. I'm going to tune in every episode. Oh, man, careful. You're going to give Aaron a big head now. <laughs> How nice is that? Yes, thank you, Smack. It was very nice, Smack. Thank you. Yeah, Aaron does all the editing, and he's very picky as well. He works very hard. So thank you. That means a lot. But yeah, please, anyone listening, feel free to leave. A... But yes, please. These are great. Thank you so much. I love this. This really does. It means a lot to see that people are enjoying what we're doing here. We love to hear the feedback. It lets us know that we're headed in the right direction with things. Thank you. But yes, to anyone listening, if you would like to leave a review, please feel free. I would love to read it. And feedback as well. I'm serious. Tell me what you think. Let your voice be heard. I'll do anything. <laughs> so if you're listening to us on the day of that the show came out, we are likely in our cars driving to Indianapolis, Indiana, in order to participate in the Wolfnet 350 at Gen Con and all the other festivities that go along with such a convention. So if you also happen to be in the car on the way to Gen Con, we'd love to hang out. Come find us. 
we're going to be at the Catalyst booth, at the Ironwind booth, and wandering around like a bunch of people that have never been to Gen Con before. So come hang out. Yeah, we can't wait to see you. And drive safe. Seatbelts. Until next time. Say la.